The following is a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies, this is Black Hollywood Live Conversations. Feature sit-down chats with some of today's most recognizable talents and entertainment. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood. Redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host of Black Hollywood Live Conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Black Hollywood Live's Conversations. I'm your host, Julian Dujeric, and you can keep up with me all across the board on all social media at Julian Dujeric, J-U-L-I-A-N-D-U-J-A-R-R-I-C. So, the 2016 U.S. presidential race is underway, and many of the candidates have laid out their plans for the big job, right? One candidate, who you may not know, is promising eternal life. That's right. Vote for him and live forever. Zoltan Isvan is a journalist, best-selling author, and 2016 U.S. presidential candidate, as I just mentioned, for the Transhumanist Party. And he joins us now via Skype to discuss it all. Zoltan, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure no one has ever asked you before. Uh, what is transhumanism? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, you know, transhumanism is a social movement of a few million people around the world. It's quickly growing. And they want to use science and technology to radically modify the uh, human being and also to, to modify the human experience. But generally, it can be anything from artificial hearts to bionic limbs to merging with machine, uploading your mind, um, crazy things like that, <laughs> that once seem science fiction. But honestly, there's, uh, you know, literally hundreds, maybe thousands of companies now working on transhumanist technology. So I, in doing research for this, you just mentioned, you know, hundreds, uh, many, many different um, companies doing transhumanist technology. Uh, exoskeleton technology is one of them that I thought was very interesting. And we'll get into that in a little bit once we get deeper into transhumanism. But um, as I mentioned in the intro, you um, are a journalist by trade. And uh, I'm wondering if you could just uh, give us the story of how your experience in journalism led you to adopt the transhumanist uh, ideology. Well, sure. Um, you know, being a journalist is a great job because obviously you're constantly like, um, you know, exploring topics and doing really heavy research. Mm -hmm. And I've always been interested in science, but I had a um, was working for the National Geographic Channel for about five, six years in my uh, late 20s. And um I had a very close call with a landmine. I was in Vietnam covering bomb diggers who dig up unexploded bombs that we dropped on them like 50 years ago, and uh, they sell the metal. But unfortunately, the job is incredibly dangerous because of the landmines are all over still. So I had a very close call where my guide literally pushed me out of the way and said, look, you almost stepped on a landmine. And um, it was just one of those moments in my life where kind of a, a bomb went off in my head philosophically. And I thought, you know, I, instead of spending all this time covering science and issues like that. Maybe I should actually promote science to not die. That would be a really cool thing. And that's how I sort of began down the, the path of, uh, I guess, being a visible or public figure for transhumanism, having written books and covering it as a journalist, and now, of course, being its presidential candidate. So let's talk about your candidacy for, for a second. Uh, what are some of the realities of of the campaign trail that uh, were not expectations prior to you taking on the task of running for president? Well, you know, to begin with, I'm an independent candidate or a third-party candidate, you know, um, 
have very little chance of winning, obviously. <laughs> but um, that said, you know, it's grown a lot bigger. I didn't really expect to be one of the most visible third party candidates when um, I began this because we were such a small political entity. And, um, you know, no one had tried something like this. No one had ever run on a very like a deeply science platform. Well, you won't and, win uh, with that attitude, Zoltan. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, and it, it's just done well. I, I'm, I'm excited because, you know, I, you know, for example, a few months ago, I found myself on the front page of the BBC. This wow. is this is important stuff for science. And uh, I was just excited about it because uh, you never know how these things can go. There are 800 candidates out there right now. Mm-hmm. And most people only know 15 or 20 of them if if they're lucky. So I've been very excited that my candidacy has grown big enough to be considered at least serious um, that said, of course, it's not we don't have the funds to really do the kinds of things. You really need hundreds of millions of dollars to be competitive in the American political landscape. And that's a that's a, a sad and un-American thing, unfortunately. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to ask this question in the most PC way. Um, how do you plan on getting people on board with the message of transhumanism? Because it's I will say for the American audience, it seems uh very um kind of kooky <laughs> no and i'm i'm the first to say this is a this is a sort of a fringe thing you know but you have to understand that 10 years ago when we talked about conquering death with science everyone thought that was insane mm-hmm. today when you talk about conquering death because you know uh genetic advancements have happened you know we have robotic organs already like artificial hearts you know we're approaching that age in fact we can keep people dead for up to four hours now brain dead heart dead also you know completely dead and still revive them this is something that 10 years ago seemed like a dream so transhumanism is changing the way we look at our bodies, the way we look at biology, the way we look at science. And yes, it still seems a bit wacky, but the American people is generally embracing of of a lot of this technology. Mm -hmm. And of course, when it comes down to living or dying or having better health, they're going to embrace transhumanist technology. So I'm a big believer that it's it's weird. Like when we all got a smartphone, we all thought it was really weird. Um, Now everyone sleeps right next to their smartphone 24 hours a day. They have it in their pocket. We've grown accustomed to these things. Uh, I think we're going to grow accustomed to a lot more technology in our lives, a lot more transhumanist technology. Well, you mentioned in some of your interviews uh, how your aim is to is to get innovative science, to get us back to the age of innovative science as a country. Uh, and you mentioned uh, the pr- President Bush, George W. Bush, at one point uh, did a stem cell. He did a halt on stem cell research. I guess um, my question is, do you think that we could recover for some, from something like that? Because there is, uh, because of that, I feel like there is this sort of sentiment that um, sort of science and tech and, and things like that aren't really um, a priority. Well, it's not. And I think, you know, you have to just remember that 75% of the country is still quite religious. Right. And they're just not sure that you know, they want to stop death with science, that they want to change what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, again, they probably would have said the same thing about a lot of the new technology that came out. I mean, we've had this this conversation endlessly when they went from going from, you know, uh, horses pulling carriages to automobiles to airplanes flying at 30,000 feet. The species eventually will evolve, will jump up in their their perception, their cultural interpretation of it will as well. But there's always going to be some type of you know, fighting. There's always going to be some type of conflict. And I think broadly speaking, it's just if you present transhumanism to people as something that is 
benefiting, you know, benefiting your health. Like I, I know everyone likes to say, oh, he's he's the guy who wants to give immortality to all his people, you know, and to, to the American people. And uh, it's really not about that. What I really want to do is make it so that people can live uh, an extra 25 or 50 years and then they can decide if they want to live longer than that. So that's really my more normal platform that's not as weird. And I think when you talk about what a presidential candidate wants to give uh, to this people, you know, health, I want to give health. I want to give the kind of thing so no one ever has to take away the people you love. No one ever has to take away, you know, get, take. you have to have some terrible disease that eats your insides apart. You know, we want to make it so that every American can be perfectly healthy for as long as they want to be. So what are you doing in that regard, aside from running for president and spreading the message? Uh, how are you planning on uh, injecting that narrative into the Washington machine? So, you know, I, I have the, the luck of writing for a number of, you know, large media places, um, Huffington Post. I have a column advice. I have a column of psychology day. I write for Gizmodo and TechCrunch, a bunch of the large tech publications, as well as a number of others. And so I'm able to kind of bombard media with my articles and with transhumanism, with this message. And, you know, we, you know, we email Hillary Clinton's team and, and, really? and Trump's team. And we say, what do you think about designer babies? This is the most important technology of the 21st century. And I haven't even heard you discuss. Have they um, responded? No, they haven't, okay. unfortunately. Because and this is what becomes really sad is it's really easy for the major politicians to talk about taxes and foreign policy and right. social security. They've been doing it forever. But the real important thing is what happened last year in China where some scientists started messing with the human genome, mm -hmm. and that leads to the possibility of eradicating cancer before anyone ever gets it. It leads to the possibility of us um, bumping up our IQ points by 20, 30 points. I have friends that are splicing literally um, plant DNA into their skin and trying to see if they can photosynthesize so they don't have to eat again. I mean, this is how far some wow. of the technology has come. And you would think all the politicians would be discussing this as something very important. But, um, you know, it's, it's a thorny thing for them, so they choose not to, which is sad in my opinion. We bombard them with stuff and hope, hopefully to get them to speak about it someday. So you're on the campaign trail. You're on uh, – I want to talk about the immortality bus, <laughs> which I think is a fascinating thing. <laughs> um, first of all, can you explain to, to us what the immortality bus is and, and also what the response has been on the road? Well, so, you know – as a third party candidate, we have to do things to generate um, mm -hmm. attention. And, you know, I'm not going to say the immortality bus is a gimmick, but it is a media catching device. What and is um, it? we chose to we want to have a national bus tour, but I'm not necessarily big enough to go across the country and get giant rallies. So by making our bus into a giant coffin, we are spreading the message of transhumanism, trying to conquer death through science. And everyone sees a coffin, wants to know what it's about. So we actually were able to generate rallies because we became kind of this this show. And um, and that was very interesting because we had a robot on board. We have a you know I have a chip implant that I can mess with in my hand and show people. We had drones on board. We had virtual reality. So we had a whole bunch of fun things to do. So we turned our campaign into a bit of an entertainment vehicle, and that was a great way to get our message out. Um, we had journalists because of this with us the entire time, embedded, um, you know, covering us. And so the immortality bus or the coffin bus, uh, yes, it was a vehicle for getting attention, but it did its job in terms of raising the profile of transhumanism and, of course, helping my candidacy out quite a bit, too. The fact that you have drones on board also helps, I bet. <laughs> well, you know, everyone hears about them, but believe it or not, huge amounts of people have never actually seen them. And they're really fun to fly. I mean, most yeah. kids can f learn how to fly them in a few minutes. So, you know, we did things like let people fly them and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, 
the drone we had are tiny. They're so fun to look at. They, they're actually quite scary because you think, wow, there could be 100 drones flying around. You wouldn't even see them. They're so small these days. Well, yeah, and and they are everywhere, and that's why the government wants to, uh, you know, register them all to know where they all are. Um, so let's talk about your platform a little bit. You are someone who supports a universal basic income, and uh, Switzerland, actually, this June, I'm sure you know, is holding a ref- the world's first basic universal income referendum. And uh, I guess my question is, why do you support universal basic income, and how do we pay for it? Well... You know, <laughs> that's the tough question. How do we pay for it? But why do I support it is quite easy. Um, so my, my wife is a, is a doctor. She's a surgeon and um, an OBGYN. And they've even told her in 15 or 20 years, it's very possible that robots will be able to deliver babies sa- more safely than human beings. This, you know, and it took her 20 years to get to being a practicing, you know, board certified doctor. So if, if someone's job, like my wife's, can be taken, anyone's job, especially my job as a journalist or even as a presidential candidate, as I've argued before in some of my articles, all jobs are going to be taken. There's just no question about that in the future, in the next 10 to 15 to 25 years. Robots, machines, software will do better than us. They'll be more efficient, and they'll be a hell of a lot cheaper. So in order to keep all the unemployed people from revolting, from throwing Molotov cocktails and just, you know, and, and becoming like some kind of dystopic universe, we need a some type of, you know, income to support them so that they have basic things like food, shelter, housing, and they could continue their lives. Um, how are we going to pay for that? Very, very difficult. But I've advocated saying, and even though I, I do subscribe to quite a few libertarian ideas, there's no question in my mind that some of the money is going to have to come from the very, very wealthy. And if it doesn't, then you're going to see economies literally fall apart. Mm-hmm. There's just no way to you, – you, you have to make equality work in order to keep um, society from revolting. And if you don't do that, you're going to have clashes in the streets. So I think at some point we're going to have to pool money from some of those very, very wealthy people and say for everyone's best interest, we're going to have to create a universal basic income so everyone can live in peace and we don't have the Molotov cocktails on the streets. That's still a very tough sell for a lot of folks in this country, Zoltan. You know that. <laughs> it's very, very tough. But I look, I'm not I'm not even telling you this is my opinion. I actually think it's a terrible opinion. Okay. But I'm telling you what I think works because there's no other way around this. Robots are going to take jobs unless we say no more robots. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, where does the money come from? And, well, the government can't pay for it all. It doesn't have enough money. And we can't raise taxes too much because – a lot of the people that you know are going to be getting that base income don't paying taxes anyway. So it's a very difficult cycle, and I hate to say it. Um, I, you know, I do lean left, but I hate to say it. At some point, we're going to have to make equality more a real thing, and we're going to have to mandate it with laws. Okay. Well, let's let's talk about um, something else that's a little bit more controversial. Uh, in doing some research, I. I just I'm going to ask you and then you'll take it from here. <laughs> so you believe that parallels exist between the LGBT uh, and transhumanist movements. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Well, sure. And, you know, transhumanists are incredibly LGBT friendly. Um, you know, we have transhumanists who want to become fish. We have transhumanists who want to grow tails. So we're like when you talk about changing our our versions of who we are, we're totally on board with that. And it's just like or being our any version you want to be. It's just like Anyone that wants to do anything, if it's not hurting somebody else, please feel free to do it. So that's one of the core promises of transhumanism. We call that morphological freedom, the right to do anything with your body, whatever you want, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone. And so 
the LGBT movement is, you know, has always been leading civil rights forward, um, especially in the last 30, 40 years. And but there are now people like in transhumans who want not just to have gender changes, but they want to change their gender maybe every week. And and, you know, we're going to have in the future in the next 10, 20 years possibilities to be able to do that. We're going to have possibilities to add different types of parts to our body. We're going to have possibilities to maybe be not even male or female, somewhere in between or across the, the spectrum and intermix with other species. As crazy as that sounds, that's where we're going. And, um, and like I said, I do know have, I have friends who want to grow tails with some of the new CRISPR gene technology that's literally come out in the last six months. CRISPR so, gene technology? What is that? Yeah, so when they talked about designer babies in the news about uh, six or uh, months ago when China started messing with the human genome, they're using this technology called CRISPR-9 where they, they kind of can piece by piece um, change your, your genetic structure, change your DNA. And so if you want to um, have your DNA say you're going to have horns or you're going to have a tail or you're going to have a third arm, you can now grow that. Now, we're not, it's not that complex yet. It's still going to take three or four more years. But the fact that we found the formula for altering our DNA and um, it means that we're going to in the future have potentially different types of species and combining hybrid species and stuff like that. So um, this idea of just being, you know, your sexual orientation, th this is this is um, we're going way beyond that. Transhumanists want to go way beyond um, what it means to be a human being. And some of us want to become machines. Some of us want to become uh, you know, different types of species mixing with animals, whatnot. And some of us just want to be super beings like like me. I really just want to take on a bunch of augmentation, robotic arms, robotic eyes, and make it so that I'm, I'm much more of a powerful, uh, uh, I guess, entity. Which is a part of your platform, too, because you mentioned, or it's on your website, actually, uh, you would like to develop the Transhumanist Olympics, so yeah, so you know this is this is a very fun thing that a lot of people think is you know wacky, but we already have this conflict between you know uh, people taking drugs, but we have drugs right now where if people want to take them like shots of adrenaline, they could probably lift twice as much weight. So or they could throw a javelin you know that much further just in that burst of energy. But in the future, we're going to have augmented limbs that are going to be even throw it further than that. So the real question is why are we making drugs such a bad name? in sports let's have there be yes there's one section of sports like the olympics with no drugs no augmentation the other one is like formula one racing except for human beings and now it's like the transhumanist olympics it's the scientists that are almost the better that are the heroes of this kind of athletic competition because they're developing different types of drugs and different type of mechanical apparatuses that can make you much better for example, shooting, you know, there's a bionic eye. There's about six companies working on the bionic eye. It's, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in 15 years people start electively taking out their normal eye and putting in one bionic eye. The bionic eye that already exists today can see closer uh, more te with more telescopic vision than you can. Um, and that's today. And so imagine where it's going to be in 15 years. But when you're having a rifle competition, you have a bionic eye, you're going to be able to see 50 miles with pure accuracy. You're going to be able to see the germs on your friends. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to be upgraded. So these are some of the reasons we might have a transhumanist Olympics. And besides that, it'll be pretty fun to see, you know, what the human body can become in the sporting element. Would, would that run the risk of becoming sensory overload a little bit? Because I'd imagine being able to see atoms and, my, you know, micro, microbial things would... Lead I to think so. Maybe just a normal <laughs> stimulation. I, mean, I feel do you like you want to see on your your partner the germs <laughs> I don't think crawling so. all over. Of course, but you know this is part of the future. Is we're going to decide how far we want to take these things, hmm. and um, 
you know, by the time we get robotic eyes in, we're going to already, we already have cranial implants, the, right. the implants that are in your brain, but there'll be different ways to interconnect a lot of these things. Like, for example, even Dick Cheney, the former vice president, had a heart valve that he was always worried about Wi-Fi, um, somebody hacking his heart valve. And this is like five, 10 years ago, um, about 10 years ago now. Um, some of the new artificial hearts we're working on are, of course, Wi-Fi enabled, and you can speed them up when you want to go running or have crazy sex, or you, if you want to sleep or meditate, you can lower the heart rate. So you have to understand, like the bionic eye and all these other augment th- augmented things, we're going to be controlling in various ways. And hopefully, if, it, if there, there'll be like a germ filter, you said, I don't want to see germs in my spouse. But maybe if you're looking at your infant, you do want to see germs. You want to make sure there's no nothing bad on her or something like that to make sure she's clean. So you know, it, it, I think we're going to work these things out sort of like we've worked out everything else with technology so far. There's going to be a gazillion new markets opening up and, and of course, trillions of dollars are made, too. So a lot of interesting things for, for people to do. One thing I've, I've wondered, and I don't know if, if you've answered this question already in any of your other interviews, so forgive me if you have, but wouldn't if you live indefinitely or if you extend your life if if the world has the ability to extend life and live as long as they would like to live wouldn't population growth be an issue and how do you so, mitigate that yeah, this is like the number one question i get asked all okay. the time because everyone's worried about it, including myself and i you know having worked for national geographic i have a kind of a strong environmental background meaning that i um I believe in global warming. I believe that we're destroying the planet. I've seen rainforests cut down in some of my stories. It's not a right-wing conspiracy uh, to you, Zoltan? No, no. I've seen it. (laughs) We are destroying the planet. There is no question about it. And and sea levels are rising. You know what I mean? It's like – but the thing here, though, is that there's another option other than reducing our carbon footprint. Well, I guess other than – there's two options that people like to say. There's denial and then there's trying to reduce the carbon footprint. And And I agree with the reducing the carbon footprint, but it's too late. If you look at the science, you can't change Earth's atmosphere anymore. You can't change rising sea levels that quickly. What we need is mega engineering projects, mega technology projects to solve the the things we've done and to recreate uh, a very pristine Earth. Like one of the classic examples, we've cut, you know, a third of the arable land on planet Earth goes to grazing cattle so we can all eat meat. Um, And that's why we cut down the rainforest. And that's, of course, affected the ozone layer and all these other things. However, meatless meat is literally here already. You've heard about in laboratories. If we could make that industry become meatless meat made in laboratories, we can literally get rid of the cattle and start regrowing those rainforests and have all our meat come from a laboratory. Besides the fact that we have to kill 150 million animals every single day. I mean, so from many different perspectives, meatless meat is this great technological advantage uh, and, and invention that could change you know, not only our atmosphere, but also regrow rainforest. This is a classic type of technology that I think the government and all other people should be really embracing in order to make our world a better place. And it's just one. I mean, there's so many different types of unique green technologies out there. If we would just be able to get governments to back them and, uh, you know, and get companies to embrace them and say, you know, this is something that we, we really need to do no matter what happens. So I want you to pardon my ignorance. Meatless meat, how does that work? <laughs> so they it, they grow it through uh, basically they take DNA strands, they grow it in a petri dish, and then, then they okay. you know it grows. And just like you know you now can grow three uh, D, you know can grow different parts of your bodies. They'll grow meat, and they're getting better at it every uh, year. Uh, it's one of the Google founders actually that's leading the charge on it. Really, and um, there's. People have now had hamburgers made from this meatless meat, and it's getting better and better and better until 
probably in a year or two, I think it's going to be hard to distinguish the difference between meatless meat and real meat. And when that happens and you can make it affordable, everyone, of course, is going to choose meatless meat because who doesn't, who wants to cut down rainforest and have cattle grazing um, just to be slaughtered someday? So, you know, again, that's, that's how the thing worked, but it's, it's such a great green technology. And you don't hear that much about it um, because it's still a little bit far-fetched. I promise you in 10 years, I bet a, I bet you'll be buying a huge amount of meatless meat in your local uh, food store. You think in 10 years, that soon? Yes, 100%. I mean, there's already wow. company, there's already restaurants that are trying to serve various forms of it. So it's hitting there. It's just, it's right now, the cost of it for a hamburger is something like $115. Mm. But just like cell phones were, you know, they first came out, they were $3,000. And now you can get them for, you know, $20, $30. Give it ten years, and it'll that that hundred fifteen dollar hamburger will now be about you know maybe a little bit more than the other one. Okay. Well, as president of the United States, I'm wondering um, wh- what are the top projects or, or industries that you would like to allocate tax revenue towards. <sighs> well, this you know I have based my platform on really one single thing, and that single thing is that the military industrial complex in this country is out of control. We spend 20% of our GDP for it, and we spend only 2% on science and technology. And I think that's a tragedy. So my very first thing would be to downsize the military, but it doesn't mean like saving the money to go somewhere else. The money would be going directly into science. We want to replace the military industrial complex with a science industrial complex in America. We have so much belief in transhumanism changing the world, in people wanting to upgrade themselves, in the in this kind of weird future that's just about to happen where everyone can do so many more things through technology by the upgrades of their body. And also they'll be living longer. They'll, they'll have more need for healthcare and stuff like that. We think we can create a science industrial complex that rivals the military industrial complex without America losing any money. And hopefully all those generals and all those soldiers and everyone else can be put into jobs that produce science rather than, um, you know, far off wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and things like that. So my main goal would be to change the military industrial complex into a science industrial complex. Okay, but specifically biohacking, um, stem cell research, uh, gene therapy, things like that. What what is it that you would love to see be injected, infused with a bunch of money? Sure. Look, um, this is very controversial, but I, I believe in what I call the trauma alert chip. Okay. Um, right now, Obama gave $70 million to DARPA to develop a chip for um, soldiers coming back from, you know, war zones where they're depressed. Uh, And um, so cranial implants, brain implants are sort of the way of the future. There's already a number of people that have them. Uh, They help with deafness. They help with Alzheimer's. They help help with um, epilepsy. They're going to be able to also at some point, and probably we already have this technology, could do in five years, I bet, if we just put a project together, where it could register brainwaves that are experiencing extreme trauma. When you, when you have real trauma, if you're drowning to death or if you're burning in a building or if you're suffocating, something like that, your brain registers in a certain area of the brain, hey, this is terrible. If you have a trauma alert chip that will pick up that terrible thing that's happening and immediately alert the authorities, we could make it so that huge amounts of the tragedies that occur in America would be – we'd have ambulances and fire people and 911 people there immediately on the scene. There are three, two to three million domestic abuse cases in America every – um, year. They all, most of them, many of them go un, unreported. A trauma alert chip would report these things. So we immediately say, wow, someone's being raped. Let's let, send, a, send some police to go help that person. So I would be a huge advocate of this. And um, 
you know, I, I realize that's very controversial because people don't want to be chipped because of surveillance reasons. Yeah. That said, I, I do believe that, you know, just like you didn't want to carry an iPhone or a, a smartphone around all the time, many people are going to be chipped. I've gone on the record saying I think 50% of the people will have some type of implant device within a 10 years time. Um, you know, this is really easy. You just go to a Starbucks. Okay, I don't have the right chip for it right now, but I can do other things with mine right now. Where you go to Starbucks and just go bloop. And your credit card information, if you're going to an airplane, you're going into an airport and you want to get an airplane, you don't need your passport. You don't need a, a ticket anymore. You just go bloop. And everything can be built in here, all your medical history. Um, it's really useful, too, if you have young kids like I, go, I have and they go to public school for the first time. You can follow them and track them without, you know, having to worry as much. So I think the future of technology is also the future of having that technology inside us. Now, cranial implants, the trauma alert implant is a bigger jump because it requires at least some type of, um, you know, intervention with the brain. But the other idea of chips is something that's going to catch on dramatically. And uh, there are numerous companies that are just starting to work on it right now. And I, I, you know, in fact, I've been working with the military. The military is, you know, really already into how to get their soldiers chipped so that we can make sure that, you know, if a soldier disappears or gets kidnapped, we can save that uh, that soldier. I, I don't even know where to go with that. <laughs> There's, um, I guess I, I, I guess my question is, um, just un, harping on the question that I asked before, uh, how do you get people on board? I mean, it just seems you mentioned just now you have a chip in your hand, and I've seen a video of you getting that implanted. So, the, it just seems to me as if that's that's a really hard sell, a tough pill for people to swallow. And and ten years, a decade, it wouldn't be enough for people to even enter, start to entertain that idea, Americans anyway. Well, so first off, you might be right with Americans. Maybe Americans will take a bit longer. Um, however, I think you, you might, you know, again, it also has to do with the demographics. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely on board with saying a huge amount of young people are going to do it. There's just too many benefits. I think like the idea of getting rid of your wallet because everything, and again, you have to understand this chip is the size of a grain of rice. You can remove it with a pair of tweezers in like 30 seconds. It goes in in three seconds. Literally, it's a, it's, a, it's a syringe. You go plop, and it has this ability to do all these different things. Now, you could say, well, why don't I just wear a watch, or I could have the same chip in the ring or something like that. Yeah. And, of course, that's, that'll be another alternative. Um, you know, the problem – and the same thing with the tattoos. They now have tattoos where you can like kind of stick it on and, or, or just ingrain it in, and also the same thing so you can take it off a lot easier. There will be variations to it, but the bottom line is – you know, the chip is the cheapest and it's going to be the easiest. It's the smallest. You can't lose it. Um, it can't come off. And uh, no one's going to know where it is. So it allows some type of security or freedom to yourself. And you're going to have the ability to turn it on and off with your phone or just pull it out if you really are that upset with it with tweezers in a matter of seconds. So uh, I know it sounds weird, but we all thought the phone was weird. We all thought the, you know, the Internet was weird when we first started. There are many different things we get used to very quickly especially if there's a lot of functionality in it. And I'm pretty I'm pretty sold on the implant thing just because, like, the functionality of it. Like, you can start your car without a key. You can walk into uh, any building without a key anymore as long as you're coded to it. You get your business card. You don't have business card. You just put your, you know, you take your phone and you go, you go, bloop, and there it is. The business card's there. It, it's, it, you know, it makes life that much more efficient, and uh, you don't can't lose credit cards anymore. It's all built into it. So, you know, I, I'm a big believer everyone's going to embrace it. I know it sounds fast, <laughs> 10 years, but uh, things have changed quickly in 10 years, too. Okay. Well, I have another question about your platform, uh, number nine, to be exact. It says, 
You would like to create a government where all politicians' original professions are represented equally. Uh, the government should not be run by 40% lawyers when lawyers only represent 10% of the country's jobs. Uh, yeah. Can one you of explain? My, sure. One of my key policies. Look, we, if you really want to believe in a democracy, then a democ- democracy has to be based on not just those that get into office because they have this you know, interest in becoming a politician and whatever – It has to be a spread of society, and there need to be regulations in place that make it um, that society is truly represented. I feel the same way, even though that article where I wrote about this um, was mostly about occupation. I feel the same thing with women and men. You know, if we're 50-50 on planet Earth, then women should be 50-50 representing us in in government as well. And there needs to be mandates um, for that sort of kind of um, representation. But it just seems astonishing to me that if, if you lawyers think a very certain way and they, their way is to make things quite complicated and hard to get around and look for every single problem. Um, that's why we run into so much bureaucracy. That's why the, the medical industry is crazy. That's why so much stuff is, is insane, actually, in America. And, and as an entrepreneur who's owned a number of businesses, I can tell you, like, lawyers have made my life very difficult. So I would love to see plumbers in there. I would love to see nurses in there. I would love to see, and when I'm talking about Congress and, and the presidency and the Supreme Court, I would love to see our American government represented by a cross-section of every single occupation that's out there. If there are, you know, 10% of the country is journalists, then there should be, government should be represented by 10% of journalists that are trying to be politicians. But you can't fundamentally have it so you have 40% have law degrees or are practicing attorneys that are then running our country. They have enough power to move us towards this kind of bureaucracy that is, is stifling for business and stifling for, for, I think, American ingenuity as well. And you also want to provide free education at every level, and you advocate for mandatory preschool and college education in the age of longer lifespans. Uh, that's a very Bernie Sanders-esque type platform. <laughs> it, it is. You know, look, so there's two reasons here. First off, going back to this universal basic income, um, robots are taking all these jobs. So really, we need to make college free because the one thing that people are going to do as soon as they lose their jobs, if they knew college was free, was go back to school because school, after all, is quite fun for a lot of people, especially if you know you have you can take it easy and have it, nobody's you know someone's paying for it. But more importantly, the reason we mandate college, um, you know, is because when they created the rules for you know, in, in America, basically everyone has to go to high school. Um, some states are you only you can stop at 17, but basically all 50 states say you have to go to some amount of high school. And those laws were created in the 1960s when the lifespan was approximately 80, um, approximately 63 years. Our, you know, American lifespan is now about 85. It's going to jump to 95 over the next 10 or 15 years. It's time that the government stand up and say, in the age of longer lifespans, we should create a more educated society. I mean, they did that in the 60s when we were living to 63, and they said, well, high school should be mandatory. Well, I think we should do that now. We should say, you know, many people are going to be living to 100. Doesn't it make sense that we also increase, um, make it mandatory that they go to college? And that, you know, it's a proven fact that the more education you have, the better you do in the world, the happier you are, the uh, more successful you are, the less crime you commit, these kinds of things. So from a societal point of view, it makes a lot of sense to try to educate everybody. So what do you believe, and this is a very general question, but I, I wanted to ask at the top, I just figured I can ask you now, what do you believe is the government's role in the lives of its citizens? The number one role for me is 
the life is health of its citizens. Okay. Like, I mean, when you think about what is a parent trying to provide for a child or what is a good friend trying to provide for another good friend or, or a sibling, you know, when it comes really down to it, what I really want to do, again, I think on a very deep survival level is just, I want to make sure you're safe and secure and happy. And right now it seems like what our government does for us is like, how much can you pay in taxes? How much can you make a, you know, uh, how much can you contribute to the economy? And I'm like, no, no, no. The government should try to make the health of its citizens, the safety of its citizens, the longevity of its citizens, its number one priority. And that's a very radical departure from, you know, seeing citizens just as tax paying entities. Um, I actually see people as people and I want them to live. I think, um, the preservation of their DNA, the preservation of their happiness, the preservation of their lives, for me, as you know, as a presidential candidate, is the most important thing. So I would say that's the government's role really should be about preserving health. You know, it should be the very first thing. Okay. So you said you have a very small chance of, of winning the presidency, which um, I believe you have a very good chance because it's a very interesting message, at least. Um, but what's, what is... F- for you post-election, post-presidential race? Sure. You know, and, and let me just, you know, the reality is that I'm trying to set the foundations right now for a real run in 2024, okay. maybe 2020, but probably 2024. Um, and I would probably then run for the Democrats or you know, a, a major party that would have the ability to win because, like I said earlier, it's impossible for an independent or even a, a third-party candidate to win unless they have a, a billion dollars, which I don't. I'm just a normal guy. Um, so I'd like to, you know, I, I am a little bit controversial now, a bit wacky, a, a bit um, on the fringe. But, you know, honestly, Al Gore, Bernie Sanders, a lot of people, um, you know, and Al Gore everyone was talking about environment in the 80s. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? This is crazy. And the same thing with Bernie Sanders with some of the stuff he's talking about. And now look, it's all come around. So maybe in eight or 12 years, uh, my platform will be a lot more normal. You know, maybe then everyone will have chips and I won't, I won't sound like this weird robotic guy. But so I'm trying to lay the foundations for it right now. And I think over the next eight years, I'm going to probably continue to do that as a futurist. I'll probably run for some local offices and try to get some real experience as well. And, um, and I'll probably be joining, um, you know, whatever political party I choose to be more a part of it so that I'm a, a little bit more of the system. Of course, right now, I'm, I'm a, even though I'm pretty well known as a third party candidate, I'm still pretty fringe and on the, on the outside. So I would join a little bit more and maybe be a little bit more uh, diplomatic with, uh, with some of the interviews I give and some of the stuff I say. Which is, when you're running for president, uh, not a bad thing. Um, of course. <laughs> so I did mention, I want to mention quickly that you do have a book out. Uh, you are a best-selling author. If you can give us a breakdown uh, of what your book is, it's called The Transhumanist Wager. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, it's the only book I've written, and uh, I'm going to be working on a nonfiction book here soon about transhumanism. When is but, that out? Um, so, um, uh, you know, I'm actually going to probably be writing a book about my bus trip across the country because okay. one of the points of the bus trip was to deliver a transhumanist bill of rights and in that transhumanist bill of rights was to start establishing future rights of different types of species, cyborgs. You know, there's a lot. Of, we're going to have artificial intelligence here in about five or ten years, basic ones like the same as a 16 year old. But we don't have any laws in place for whether how that artificial intelligence is. And, for example, when the LGBT um, got, you know, was able to marry uh, through the Supreme Court, uh, the very next day, people went to the, you know, started filing lawsuits saying, well, I want to marry my robots. 
So as crazy as that sounds, it's not crazy. It, this is the future. People want all these different things, and they should be able to have them. They should be able to marry their robots. But the reason I mention this, I'm going to be writing a book about all of this, and it's really about the bus trip and how I went across the country talking to different groups um, and, and, and these rallies and everything that happened because I sort of – I really – you know, I went to the Deep South. I, I was, you know, in oh, California. Boy. We were in, in – you know, there was many different places. And, of course, we delivered this transhumanist Bill of Rights to the U.S. Capitol building. But going back, my – the first book I wrote was called The Transhumanist Wager. It's a novel. It's very controversial. It's about a transhumanist who um, will do anything to live indefinitely, and he ends up um, – overtaking the world of course it's a novel it's a fictional novel and implementing a transhuman society so nobody dies if they don't want to anymore and um you know i the, the point of the book is that 150,000 people die every day and when our government and when governments around the world don't spend money to try to stop death they're essentially letting their own people die and that's why you know for me the number one priority is people's health i'm not just trying to stop um you know, I, I'm I'm here to try to stop death for everybody, and including myself, my family, my you know American citizens, uh, friends, everybody involved, and um, that's something that I think is really important. When we don't try to do that, that's what the transhumanist wager is all about. When we don't try to stop death, we're essentially, you know, saying, well, it's okay to die. It's okay that those hundred fifty thousand people die a day. Well, I don't think that, and that's why I'm trying to do something about it. And that's what the book's about. Well, Zoltan, I wish we had three hours to talk about all of this stuff because it's it's fascinating to me, and um, I it's, it's clearly a very a very clear passion for you. Uh, where can everybody keep up with you online if they want to know more about you and, and transhumanism, your presidential run, all of that? Sure. So you know, my personal website is zoltanishvan.com. That's the presidential website. Um, the immortality bus is immortalitybus.com. And we will be traveling again on it. In fact, we have a, a couple of TV shows interested in producing a series on it. So oh. hopefully you may see that. And um, is you know, that the we, Lionsgate? The next year, we'll... Is that the Lionsgate project? Yes, yes. So hopefully okay. that will turn into something. And uh, hopefully there would be filming later in the in the summer. Unfortunately, when we built the coffin top uh, on the bus, <laughs> we closed off all the heating systems, all the air conditioning systems. So it's very hard to drive that bus in winter, even in D.C., where we were there. Uh, it was getting very, very cold on board. So, uh, you know, there were some modifications that made it tough. But hopefully you will see that um, both on TV. And so if you want to visit the site and look at all the videos that are already there, it's immortalitybus.com. And uh, if you want to read my book, it's The Transhumanist Wager. Just go to amazon.com and uh, you can find it there. Well, Zoltan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, you're a very busy man uh, and you have a lot going on, clearly. Uh, but we really appreciate your time and we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much for having me. It's been mm -hmm. great, great talking to you. All right. Thanks, Zoltan. And thank you all for tuning in and joining us. Um, this has been Conversations. I'm your host, Julian Dujeric. You can reach me on social media at Julian Dujeric all across the board, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of that. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. From executives Kevin Undergaro, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, and the entire BHL staff, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us. Info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. 
and I am the official voice of Black Hollywood Live. Tip you, Instagram at KingXOBay. Thanks for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.